Will you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, John chapter 20 in your Bibles. And our guys have some Bibles to distribute so that everybody can follow along. So in each of the aisleways, Gene has some here. Larry's got some in the middle. Len's got some here. As they make their way back, if you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll get one to you so you can follow along as we look at John 20. In our series, which is coming to a close, there are 21 chapters in the book of John. So we're about a chapter and a half away from finishing our journey through the Gospel of John. The series we've titled, you see on the screen, Meet Your Maker, because in the pages of this book, the character of our Maker, our Creator, and our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, is made known to us. We meet Him there. Now we come to John chapter 20. Pastor James Montgomery Boyce, who's now with the Lord, he told the following story about a famous battle between the French General Napoleon and British, uh, the British General Wellington. It was in June of 1815. And so anxious was everyone in the nation of Britain as to the outcome of this fateful battle that they posted centuries. They were signal men throughout the land. The first of these centuries, the guy who was supposed to give a signal when the battle was over and the verdict was in, he was posted atop Winchester Cathedral. He was given orders to look out to the sea for there was a, a signal ship that was going to be launched as soon as the battle was completed. And when that ship came in sight of the signalmen at the top of the cathedral, he would in turn relay the message to a man on a distant hill and he would relay it, and then in that fashion it would spread throughout the nation. So the day came. And the ship was sighted, and it was sailing toward the coast, but as is often the case in and around Britain, there was this thick fog. And the signalman first sent the word Wellington, the British general. And then he sent the second word, defeated. And then the fog rolls in. And so that message, Wellington defeated, was relayed to London and across England, and gloom descended on the entire countryside. And it wasn't for two or three hours later that the fog lifted and the entire message came. Wellington defeated the enemy. Now think about the three days after Jesus was murdered on the cross. Those three days after he was executed, but before he rose from the dead. That's the kind of truncated, confused message that everyone got for those three days. Jesus defeated. Our hopes are dashed. Our worst fears have been realized. And in the passage that we're going to look at today, we find Mary Magdalene at the tomb. And though the tomb is empty, she's confused about what has happened. All she knew and all the others knew was that Christ had been apparently defeated. But soon the fog was lifted for Mary and she could know that Christ was not defeated, but rather he had defeated the enemy because he had risen from the grave, just as he said. And this is not. Mary's first trip to the tomb that we're going to read about in John chapter 20. She's come now again, and her intention is clearly to anoint the dead body of the Lord Jesus 
with more spices that she has brought. We saw last week how she had come and she found the stone rolled away and the guards were gone and she ran to tell Peter and John. And they came and they discovered that he had risen just as he had said he would, but she had not received that news. And so we find her standing alone now, weeping. And finally she stoops and she looks in and two angels are there, the passage tells us. And they ask her why she's weeping. And she doesn't recognize them as as angels. They appear to her as men. And showing her loving concern and also her boldness, Mary says to them in the middle of verse 13. Take a look at verse 13. They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. And then sensing someone behind her, she turns and she sees the Lord. But she doesn't recognize him. And why she doesn't recognize him, we don't know. We do know from another account that I'll show you on the screen in just a bit from Luke 24, there were two travelers after Jesus had risen that spoke with him on a road. and They didn't recognize him after his resurrection either. Whatever the reason, she didn't recognize him. And she's in great despair. And what's going on with Mary is that her, her faith is shaken, which has in turn destroyed her hope, but she still has love for the Savior. Her faith is shaken. It's destroyed her hope, but she still has love. And we often find those three, faith and hope and love, together in Scripture. Some of you will remember 1 Corinthians 13 in your Bible. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And in the first chapter of the letter to the Thessalonians, the Bible says this, We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith and hope and love often together. Why? Faith is belief. You've heard me say many times in the past that the word faith in your New Testament is the same word, same Greek word translated belief. It's believing what God has said and what God has has promised. And then hope in turn is the confident expectation of our future based upon the promises that God has made. So I have faith. I believe what God has said. And therefore, I have hope, a confident expectation about the future and love is the self-giving of one for the benefit and the honor of another faith and hope and love. Mary Magdalene was a remarkable woman. She was the last to leave the cross. She was the first to come to the tomb. But that Easter morning, she came with weak faith and with no hope. And no doubt, all who had seen the Lord placed in the tomb had such a collapse of faith as well, and so they too had had their hope dashed. I mentioned in another passage in the Bible that Jesus, after his resurrection, walked with a couple of people who didn't recognize him. It's recorded in Luke chapter 24. And there Jesus, after he's risen from the dead, comes alongside two guys, followers of his, who are making their way from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. And the Lord appeared to them incognito. They, they weren't able to recognize him. He began to question them as to why they were so sad. And here's how they answered. 
Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? Jesus asked, what things? They answered about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. Now note these words. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now little did they know at that point that he had... And they were speaking with him. But their hope, their confident expectation now had vanished. And without faith and without hope, Mary comes to the tomb. But her love is still alive. And she turns and she sees the Lord, but she doesn't know it's him. And she asks in verse 15, look with me. He asks her, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Mary thinks he's the gardener, the caretaker of the seminary. She says with words of love in verse 16, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. I will get him. Now think about that. (laughs) If you were here last week, you, you may remember that when they entombed a dead body and in their form of embalmment, they would put strips of linen and 75 pounds worth of spices And Mary here says, if you've taken him, give me the body. What is this lone woman going to do? With this body, with these 75 pounds, she's speaking out of her love and out of her despair. And then our Lord Jesus calls her name according to the text. Mary. And she recognizes the voice. And when you read that, you cannot help but be reminded of what we saw several weeks ago as we've gone through the Gospel of John. In John chapter 10, do you all remember Jesus said, My sheep, hear my voice. I know each one of them. I call them by name. They hear my voice and they follow me. And the Bible in John 20 tells us Mary responded, By saying rabbi, teacher, or master. And she fell to the ground. She began to hug his feet. Her faith has been renewed. Her hope has now been restored. It is not over. Jesus has not been defeated. And now as we come to verses 17 and 18, with that background to Mary's encounter with Jesus after his resurrection, we're going to find illustrated, What New Testament scholar Edwin Bloom says, verse 17 contains, and I agree with him, that here we see the risen Lord gives us a new relationship. He gives us new relatives and he gives us a new responsibility. To put it another way, the scriptures are teaching us here that the risen Lord Jesus assures us of his abiding presence that will never be taken away. He adopts us into his family and he entrusts us with the gospel message. And I have those for you in the outline that was inserted in your program. And I invite you to follow along as we look at those in verses 17 and 18. In verse 17, Jesus said to Mary, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, 
to my God and to your God. Now, why does Jesus say to her, don't hold on to me? I've not yet returned to the father. And after all, later on in this very chapter, he's going to have an encounter with Thomas, one of his followers known as Doubting Thomas. You remember that. And Thomas says, I have to actually touch him. And Jesus allows Thomas to touch him. But he's telling Mary Magdalene here, do not hold on to me. And in other of the gospel accounts, Matthew in particular, we're told that people did, in fact, other people did, in fact, cling to and hug Jesus after his resurrection. So why is he telling her, don't do this? Well, in Greek, that phrase, do not hold on to me, it means to grasp or to, to cling to. And the grammar indicates that Jesus is saying, stop doing this. And he's telling her not to do this in relation to what he says next, because I have not yet returned to the Father. So what was there about going to the Father that caused Jesus to prohibit Mary from clinging to him, when in fact he allowed others to do that very thing? Well, commentator Don Carson gives a helpful explanation, I think, of what's going on here. He says the intent is something like this. Mary, you do not need to hang on to me as if I were about to disappear from you. I'm not ascended yet. I haven't gone to the Father yet. This is a time for joy and sharing the good news, not for clutching me. In fact, I have a task for you. I'm going to send you on a mission, as we're going to see. Get up, Mary. You're gripping me like you think I'm going to leave you forever. I haven't gone to the Father. Get up. I have something for you to do. In a real way, Jesus is assuring her of his abiding, continued presence that will not be taken away. I'm not going to disappear from you. You're going to see me again. And so think about the abiding presence of Christ that we have as a result of the resurrection. And I note for you in the outline that Jesus' death did not separate him from us. One of the great sorrows in all of our lives, and we will all experience this, most of us already have, is to stand beside the grave of a loved one that we have lost. And we feel the full force of the separation that's caused by death. And we weep because of our sorrow at that separation. We long to see that loved one again. But in John 20, we see Jesus standing beside his empty tomb, and it's a vacated grave, and he assured Mary of his continued presence. And this moment, this moment of Jesus being alive, having conquered death, is pivotal in all of history. It's like a stone that's thrown into a middle of, the middle of a pond. And you see the ripples just continue to go outward. The resurrection is the center of the pond of history. Its ripples are felt by everyone who's ever lived or ever will live because Jesus is alive, because he is risen. His death could not separate him from us. But notice, secondly, his glorification did not separate him from us. He died, but he was risen. But when he rose, he was in a different kind of body, a glorified body. The kind of body that you will have when you go to heaven, that I will have when we go to heaven. But his glorification did not separate him from us either. Jesus, after his resurrection, was not mortal any longer. 
In his glorified state, we still find him in flesh, though, not spirit. In a few verses in John 20, he's going to invite Thomas to actually touch his flesh. In the next chapter, last chapter of the Gospel of John, we're going to find Jesus resurrected, glorified state. (laughs) He says to his disciples, do you guys have anything to eat? And they have fish together in the last chapter of the Gospel of John. He's in the flesh. But here's an important truth, friends. God is, and here's here's a big word, he is transcendent. He's beyond our ability to fully grasp. He's beyond our ability to commune with him, to have fellowship with him face to face. But this God, who is like that, has made himself truly known because he broke into history in human flesh as the God-man, Jesus Christ. And get this, though he is now glorified, he remains enrobed in humanity. He continues to be human. So that he is truly what the Bible said, the one who would come would be. You will call him Emmanuel. Do you remember what that means? The Bible says, God with us. And so now we can be with and he with us as his creatures. Now to be sure, Jesus in the flesh ascended to heaven. But before he returned, he promised that he would be with us in a spiritual sense. And so before Jesus left, he said, I'm leaving you here, but I'm going to be with you. I'm still going to be with you spiritually to the end of the age. You all remember him saying in some of his very last words to his followers, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Friends, the risen Christ is with us. And in Acts chapter 1, next book after John in your New Testament, Acts chapter 1, The one who wrote it, Luke, starts in chapter 1, and he's just recounting where they left off in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books. And there he recounts that Jesus was taken up before his followers' very eyes. And they watched him, and they've got their mouths hanging open as as they, they watch him leave. And the angels announced to them that Jesus is going to return to them just as he left. And so we enjoy that promise in the future, but in the meantime, we have the promise of his continued presence with us. And as we look to that future, here's what John, same guy who wrote these 21 chapters in this book that you're looking at, he wrote three other books, actually four others in your New Testament. First, second, third John, he wrote the book of Revelation. And in first John chapter three, here's what he says. When he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We have the promise of Jesus abiding presence today and we will be with him for all eternity. Now notice in the text that after Jesus calmed Mary's fears, he gives her this commission in the middle of verse 17. Look with me, if you will. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. He gives her a message to give to the disciples whom he calls, notice what he calls them, brothers. Now, the significance of this message is more than just the words, I'm going to the Father. Here for the first time, Jesus uses family terminology. I'm going to my Father and your Father. And go and tell my brothers 
this message. The risen Lord adopts us into his family. And there are at least three implications of that fact that the risen Jesus adopts us into his family. I have them listed for you. The first one is we are brothers and sisters with one another. Some of you have heard me say over the years, the most oft used metaphor in the New Testament to describe the church is a family. There are a number of illustrations, metaphors in the New Testament for the church. It is the bride of Christ. It is a building. It is the body of Christ. It's a number of things. But the most often used is of the household of God, the family of God, the people within it, our family. They are brothers and sisters. And we've tried to embody that in the motto of our church. Every time you see our logo on the front of the program you received, underneath it says, the family of God built on the word of God to the glory of God. It's easy for us to lose sight of this. When I was a kid, it was not easy to lose sight of it. Here's why. Everybody in the church I grew up in was called brother or sister so-and-so. In fact, nobody had a first name. It was just Brother Smith or Sister Smith, Brother Brown, Sister Brown. That was the way it was. And people were just called that all the time. Now, it can lose its significance like anything as you do that over and over again. The important thing for us to remember and to know is that the Bible tells us that we are brothers and sisters. And there's a responsibility that goes with that in the way we treat one another. It is true, certainly, that... Brothers and sisters mistreat each other, but we all know intuitively that brothers and sisters ought to treat each other in a special way. And the Bible emphasizes that kind of special relationship that's made possible because of our risen Lord. More remarkable than that, Jesus not only says we're brothers and sisters, but then he calls us his brothers. We are Christ's brothers and sisters. The Bible tells us that Jesus is, he's called the firstborn or the chief heir among many brothers. Here's what the Bible says. Jesus is to be the firstborn among many brothers. Now think about that. This is the same person, Jesus, of whom the Bible says, for instance, in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. That's a mouthful. But what it's saying is this. He's God. He's deity. And everything that God is dwells in him who has come in the flesh as a human being, both fully God and fully man. And this one condescends to say, you are my brothers and sisters. The one that's being described here is the one who spoke the worlds into existence out of nothing. He's the sovereign Lord of all. He's the one who declared of himself just before he ascended back to the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the Bible describes a day when at Jesus' name, every created being in the entire universe, in heaven and on earth and in the depths of hell, will bow down and proclaim that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is the one who stoops, condescends to say, you are my brothers and you are my sisters. And equally stunning in verse 17, Jesus says this. I'm returning to my father and your father, my God and your God. 
What he's saying is this, that if you're related to me, you are now God's children. Now, notice I say you are now God's children. Because many have taught, unfortunately, wrongly, for many years, that God is everyone's universal father and everyone is universally brothers and sisters. Sometimes you'll hear that. Perhaps you've said that. Well, God's the father of everyone. But the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that unless we are adopted into God's family because we have come to Jesus Christ, unless we're adopted into his family, we are outside of the family of God, estranged from him because of our sin. The Bible says that some are children of God because God has graciously brought them into his family in spite of the fact that they do not deserve it. I do not deserve it. You do not deserve it. And those who have not come to Christ then are not in his family. It is only by his grace adopting us into his family. And remember what that grace is. It's the kindness of God that does not give me what I deserve. But it instead lavishes me with what I do not deserve. And God gives me in his grace what I do not deserve. He calls me his child. That's why John wrote, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Now, if you just leave it there, if John just leaves it there and he says, how marvelous is that, that we should be called, that we should have the title children of God. And that is marvelous. That is wonderful. But John has another statement I'm going to show you in a moment, because it's not enough to just have the title. It's not enough to just have the birth certificate. It's not enough to just be called the children of God. He goes on with amazement to say, and that is what we are. It's not just a title. God actually treats us that way. When we come to Jesus, we're adopted into his family and he treats us as his children. How stunning are these words then to this woman? The first one to whom our Lord revealed this family terminology. You are my brothers and sisters. God is your father. Now, lastly, here's what Jesus does in his words to Mary. He commissions her with a simple task. It had been a long day. Mary had made three trips to the tomb. And Jesus says to her, verse 17, go instead to tell my brothers Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my father and your father, my God, your God. Verse 18 says, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The risen Lord gave her and gives us the responsibility of the gospel message. Jesus says to her, Mary, get up. Stop clinging to me. I've got a task for you. I want you to go and tell my brothers, the disciples, that I'm in the process of going back to the Father. The implication is tell them that I'm I'm here. Now, what's interesting is, am I right about this? Could Jesus have gone and done that himself? Right? Jesus could have gone and done it himself. In fact, someday he would appear, excuse me, on that same day he would appear to several people. But he chose to commission Mary. 
the first to see him is now given the joyful task of announcing that he's risen. And Mary delivered the message. And I think the translators of the NIV, the Bible, most of you have in front of you, got it right. When they put an exclamation point at the end. Where she goes to them and she doesn't just say, you know, I, see, I saw Jesus. Can you imagine, can you just imagine what it would have been like for this woman to come? After that ordeal, after all of the despair, her faith is weak, her hope is lost, and now it is all reborn, regained, restored, and she goes back, and she doesn't care. She doesn't think about. I wonder how people are going to receive this. I wonder what they're going to think about me. After all, I'm a woman. You all know the culture of that day. It was a patriarchal society. I'm a woman coming to tell them this profound truth. I wonder how, the, how this message will be received. She doesn't care about any of that. She doesn't stop off for coffee and bagels. She goes straight to them and she says to them, I have seen the Lord. With, there is no doubt that with all of the enthusiasm she can muster, she says to them, I've seen him. He's alive. Everything's different. Come see. Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter that we get that? Well, because that wasn't just Mary's reaction. Then Peter and John reacted to the reality of Jesus being alive. And Peter's willing to stand up in Acts chapter 2 before a hostile crowd. And he has the courage, a coward just a few days earlier, he has the courage to stand up and say, with wicked hearts and wicked hands, you executed Jesus, but he's alive and he's returning. And he commands all men everywhere now to repent. He is the dividing line. He's the issue. And they stand up and they proclaim that for everybody to hear. No matter who the audience is, no matter what the consequences are, Jesus is alive. Now you compare that and I compare that to my and our timidity, fear, lack of enthusiasm for the truth that Jesus is alive. And we should be, should we not, we should be convicted. Friends, is it the case that Jesus is every much alive this moment as he was when Mary saw, her, saw him? He's alive. He's returning. He is active in his world. And so a guy can be in a hospital bed. But Jesus is still alive. A person can be at any point in their life. As far away as you could imagine from God. And the truth of the matter is sometimes we look at people and we say, there's no way. There is no way. Don't we? But here's what we forget. Jesus is alive. And he's given us that message. That message can be taken to anyone, anywhere, in any circumstance. And the God who has power over death has power over the heart of men and women. And he can move on it and he can change it in an instant. 
And he lets me and he lets you be the ambassador, the vehicle to carry out that message. What a marvelous privilege. And we're going to bow in just a moment. We're going to thank the Lord Jesus Christ for those privileges, a new relationship, new relatives, a new responsibility to give the gospel message. Let's thank him for that. Let's confess to him our lack of enthusiasm, our fear, our timidity. Let's resolve, Lord God, your mercy, your grace. We're going to be your servants, your ambassadors in a way we have not been. And then for anyone who is here, I don't know everybody here, but for anybody who's here, you've never come to Jesus. Here's the deal. You don't have a relationship with God. Outside of Jesus Christ, you do not have a spiritual relationship with God, but you can. You can be adopted into his family. What do you do? You do the same thing Clyde did in the hospital yesterday. You ask him. You acknowledge that you need it because you're a sinner. You confess that he is the one, the only one, who could pay for your sin. He died on the cross to pay for your sin. You tell him, I no longer want to go my own route. I'm going to go your route. I'm going to follow you. That's what we mean each week when we say that you are to realize who you are, recognize what Jesus did, repent, go his way, not your way, and then receive Jesus into your life. And we put a sample prayer for you. It's no magic formula. You don't have to pray these words. It's from your heart to God, but you ask him, Lord, I'm a sinner. You died for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to save me. I want to follow you. He promises that he'll save you, and you'll be adopted into his family as well. Let's bow. Father, thank you for this reminder this weekend of the power of the gospel, the move of your Holy Spirit, the fact that there is nothing that any of us can do to recommend ourselves to you. It is only what Jesus has done. And therefore, there are all kinds of implications for that. It doesn't matter then where, how bad the sin has been, where we've been, what we've done, what's been done to us, that it's all because of your work and your work is grand enough and big enough And your blood covers every sin and all sin for all time when we come to you. And so anyone can do that at any place at any time. Thank you, Lord, for moving in our hearts. So many that are represented in this in this room right now at different points, different ages, different circumstances. But all of us had to come to the same place, to the foot of the cross of Jesus. We thank you that you moved in our hearts so that. We did that. We did that at the invitation of somebody. Somebody gave us the message. Somehow, a preacher, a Sunday school teacher, a mom, a dad, a co-worker. Somebody left a tract. Somehow we heard the good news and you moved on us and we responded to it. We haven't been the same since. And you give us all of these privileges now. You're our father. We're in your family. We're related to Christ. We're related to one another. We're being given the joyful responsibility of declaring your good news. Thank you, Lord God. Forgive me. Forgive us for our complacency. When we have in our hands this marvelous message. And I pray for anyone here right now who has never come to God through Jesus. That your spirit is moving upon their hearts. For the first time that they're recognizing their need for the Savior because of their sin. And that they are calling out to you. 
Lord, we will stand upon your promise that he who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We thank you, Lord, for this day, for these events, and for this message from your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.